the word of the Lord. Please give it full attention. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker of the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Paragon and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This, dear ones, is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you. We come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the strength and help of your spirit. And we pray now, Lord, that you would give to us grace as we consider this most glorious portion of your scripture. Help us, Lord, to see, to hear, to understand and believe. And Lord, through these, uh, Lord, we also pray that you would give us grace to obey. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ, and we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, once again, brothers and sisters, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I do welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the apocalypse of John. I do pray that we have spent a fruitful time in John's prologue. Now we come to the main body of this letter. And here, beginning in verse 9, we are given some subtle descriptions concerning the conditions under which this letter was written. John tells us that he was on the island of Patmos and that he was there because, as he says, of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Many, including myself, I'm sure, have a a certain assumption about the island of Patmos. Uh, Many, I'm sure, when you hear the island of Patmos, uh, imagine a certain kind of condition, or at least imagine what you believe Patmos must have been like. Many, including myself, let's see, maybe you can identify with me, Imagine a deserted island 
where John was isolated from any human contact, forced to fight against the elements of the island, seeking to find a way to survive, and eventually dying on the island of Patmos. Well, maybe we can clarify some wrong assumptions this morning. Let's start with just basic things. Patmos, defined, means my killing. Patmos, defined, means my killing. Because it was a sterile island, meaning it was unable to produce fruit or vegetation. It was a rocky island. It was located some 30 or 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. It was much like what we know today as Alcatraz. It was a barren, rocky island, but it was much larger than Alcatraz. It was said to be, it is said to be, and it still exists today, uh, 10 miles in length, 6 miles in width. It's a very large island in in terms of, of islands, Uh, 10 miles in length, 6 miles in width. Because of its barren nature, it it was used by the Roman government as a place of banishment or place of expulsion. But it was not uninhabited. Anytime they needed to expel someone, expose someone, uh, they would send them to this island. The Romans would banish those specifically who were convicted of crimes such as the practice of magic or astrology. Uh, Romans did not receive well any kind of pagan idolatry. Uh, Christianity was seen as a pagan religion, specifically because it was new. And Romans did not respect anything new. They respected the, the Jews because their religion was ancient, so they respected it. But they did not respect the Christians because their religion and their opinion was new. It was a new form of idolatry or paganism. And they also would not accept the preaching that one, they had just crucified Jesus Christ. They would not accept the preaching that he was the son of God. Therefore, John was sent to the island of Patmos because of his, again, as he says, the word of God and the testimony of Christ. He was testifying on behalf of Christ and he was sent into uh, this island called Patmos. And he would be, not isolated, but he would be in the company of other prisoners and also in the company of the guards who watched over him. So he was not isolated. John tells us again that he was there on Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Christ. It is interesting, listen to this, that John is traditionally known as the youngest of all of the disciples. It's also interesting that it is said that John was sent to Patmos out of fear of John. John is, is sent away. He's exiled. He's, he's expelled because of fear of John. Church tradition says prior to John being sent to Patmos for his crime of preaching Christ, they attempted to kill John by boiling him in hot oil. Because of his testimony. Well, where's the fear? Fear came when after removing John from this boiling oil, John did not have a mark on him. 
Now, you're not going to see that in the text, but church history says that this is the reason why John was sent to Patmos because they were afraid of him. It is said that the authorities were gripped with fear and that awe gripped the witnesses, so much so that many turned to faith in Christ. And because of that, John was banished in order to silence both the witness that John had survived this type of killing and also to silence the message that John was preaching that people would hear after learning that he had survived burning oil. It was there on that island under these circumstances that God in his mercy, uh, that God in his grace gives this vision to John. And it is a vision that creates and gives hope for the church, past and present and future. It was there on that rocky island that God pronounces his glory and victory in Christ, the Son of God, who will return and consummate all of history with his return. Now this morning, with God's help, we shall consider three points concerning John on the island of Patmos, but in the spirit. John on Patmos. But in the spirit. Number one, John, our brother and fellow partaker. John, our brother and fellow partaker. Verse verse nine. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, listen to this, and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus as on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I would like you to first notice that John proclaims himself to be in solidarity with the church, that, that he is one with the church, those to whom he was writing. He says with great endearment, and I, I pray that as you're looking at the verse, you see that it is meant to be with great endearment. endearment. He says, I, John, your brother, Essentially, John is saying, I am your brother. John, just like the other apostles, and just like every other true disciple of Christ, does not exalt himself above the other saints, but claims equal status among them in the eyes of God. I am your brother, John. Though John was given this grand vision, Though he was considered the adopted son of Mary, the, the, the mother of Jesus, the disciple who is known as the one whom Jesus loved, the mentor of Polycarp, who went on to mentor great theologians such as Irenaeus and Tertullian, regards himself as our brother. I, John, your brother, Brothers and sisters, no amount of knowledge, no association that we may have, no amount of money that we may acquire, no prestige that we would ever attain should ever cause us to regard ourselves as anything other than a fellow brother of those who are in Christ Jesus. We are in equal standing in the eyes of God, in the eyes of men. We may exalt one man over another, but John teaches us a good lesson. Don't do that. 
Don't do that. We know who this man is. If church history is correct, this is the one who survived boiling oil. If church history is correct, this is the one Jesus loved. If church history is correct, this is the one that Jesus said, Mary is now your mother. We may exalt him above others, but John says, don't do that. I am your brother. I am merely and only your brother. What is more, our brother John, not only does he identify himself with brothers, and let me put in, in parentheses, and sisters. Then and all throughout history, he not only identifies himself with them as their fellow brother in Christ, but he also identifies himself with them in their tribulation. I am your brother, not only in Christ, but I am also your brother equally in tribulation. The tribulation that you suffer, I am suffering with you. Even though John be on the, on the island, 30, 40 miles away from the church whom he loved in Ephesus. John was identifying himself even though he was not there with him. I am there with you in spirit. You are suffering there. I am suffering here. We together are suffering in Christ through tribulation. Because of the testimony of Christ. Because of the word of Christ. We will suffer tribulation. Uh, when we think about those who are suffering tribulation in other countries, in villages, in cities, in underground places, they are our brother. They are our sister. We must pray for them as such. We are their brother. They are our brothers. The Bible says in, in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who want to live in a godly way in Christ will be persecuted. And therefore, we join. We join John. That which John was experiencing was summed up as being typical. It was summed up as being common to what all believers experience in their witness to Christ. But I'd like for you to notice this. And I pray that this would be something that is an overarching uh, point that stands out in your mind today. John does not speak of his experience in a manner of defeat. John does not for one second claim victory for the other side. Rather, on the contrary, John centers his experience on the kingdom of God. And it is fitting because in verses 5 and 6, John describes Christ as being the ruler of the kings of the earth. Christ is ruling now. Christ is reigning now. But we must remember that the rule and reign of Christ does not extend just over presidents. Just over governors and queens and kings of the earth. Uh, the rule of Christ also extends to another royalty that we might overlook. Verse 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom. He has made us to be a kingdom. Meaning what? Meaning Christ rules over the royal priesthood. The kings in his kingdom. And those of you ladies, that does mean queens too. The church, you and I, just so that there's no misunderstanding, you heard me right. 
we are regarded as kings of heaven. Alexander McLaren says, we are his kingdom, insofar as our wills joyfully and lovingly submit to his authority. And then, insofar as we are his kingdom, we are kings. And just again, so that there is no misunderstanding about what the scriptures are communicating, yes, God describes his saints not merely as subjects in Christ's kingdom, but as fellow partakers in reigning with Christ, you are regarded as kings in the kingdom of God. Now, that might cause some of us to say, well, well I, that sounds a little prideful and arrogant. Well, you're going to first need to take that up with God because that's how God regards you. But secondly, this should produce not pride, but humility. If in hearing I am a king, that your, your shoulders square back and your head goes high and you begin to carry yourself with arrogance, then you're viewing this in the wrong manner. Because our kingship has not been accomplished by our works. Our kingship, our royalty, if you will, has been accomplished by Christ. So then, while we are a royal priesthood, while we are kings in the kingdom of Christ, our attitudes must be like that of Christ. Because we are under his supreme rule. Uh, don't go to your Facebook or your Instagram or whatever social media you have and, and post a, a private picture of yourself and say, I'm a king, I'm a queen. Don't do that today. That's not the point. The point is that you are citizens in the kingdom of God. You have been given the right through the work of Christ to reign with him. And we display that we are a part of his kingdom when we live by his commands. The Jewish religious leaders proclaim this. We have no king but Caesar. But the church proclaims, we must obey God rather than men. Why? Because we have a king. And we are kings in his kingdom. John knows that this is the attitude of all true believers. Did you hear the circumstances in which John is writing this? He's on Alcatraz, if you will. And John is saying, even while on Alcatraz, even while being and suffering tribulation... I am suffering tribulation, but it's only because I'm a part of his kingdom. Therefore, I will persevere. I, I am suffering here now, persecution, tribulation, but it's only because I'm a part of the kingdom of Christ. Therefore, I will persevere. John was experiencing the consequences of uncompromised allegiance to, to the Christ. And if you are experiencing or walking through or committing to uncompromising allegiance in the kingdom of Christ, then experience, then you will experience here and now, tribulation. If you are going to be committed to the kingdom of Christ, then you will, here and now, for a time, suffer tribulation from those who are fighting against the kingdom of God. But fret not. Persevere. Because the kingdom of this world will come to an end. The exercise of the rule in this kingdom as kings, it begins and it continues only as one faithfully endures tribulation. Are you suffering? It's because you're part of his kingdom. Are you experiencing tribulation? If you are truly a king in the kingdom of Christ, then you will persevere. 
then you will press on. Because the kingdom of this world is temporary. But the kingdom that you belong to is eternal. Uh, G.K. Beale says this is the formula of kingship. Faithful endurance. The formula of kingship is faithful endurance through tribulation. Is the means by which one reigns in the present with Christ. Are you reigning with Christ? Then persevere. Are you reigning with Christ? Are you a part of his kingdom? Then endure. Whatever you are suffering for the kingdom, endure it because you are a part of the kingdom. We are actively involved in, uh, when I was growing up, this, here's how uh, they take it too far. When I was growing up, I was taught, you're kings and you're queens. Therefore, walk into the bank and demand a loan because you're a king and queen. You're demanding something from the kingdoms of this world. You're not a part of their kingdom, so they have the right to say, do you know? You're not a part of that kingdom. Uh, you are a part of riches, of, of, you have riches that will not perish. You are a part of an inheritance that will never grow old. You are kings and queens in Christ. We are actively involved in the kingdom of God, not just by enduring tribulation. Listen to this. Not just by enduring tribulation and then waiting someday to join the kingdom of God, but reigning with Christ in the midst of tribulation now shows that you are a partaker of the kingdom of Christ today. Uh, Not one day, but now. Tribulation cannot inhibit the kingdom of Christ. Here's John exiled on the island of Patmos. From the perspective of the world, he was disempowered. From, From the perspective of the world, he's on this barren rock. No fruit can come from this. And in these circumstances and under these conditions, Christ gives John a vision that will produce fruit on that barren island where no fruit grows. Fruit that will feed the nations of his church, of his kingdom, until he returns. They they thought they were stifling the kingdom of God. They thought they were silencing the kingdom of God. And even on the, the rock, Alcatraz, if you will, Patmos, Christ says, even there I will still produce fruit and bring my gospel to the world reminiscent of what Christ told all of the faithful in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Say that again and again and again and again. These things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. That you may have peace in this world. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. Every time it comes your way, say to yourself what Christ says. But be of good cheer. But be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. Because I have overcome the world. Because Christ has overcome the world. You need, you know these things. You need to repeat these things to yourself. It's not just the pastor who will say to you every Lord's Day and remind you God is still good. Christ is still risen. Christ is still victorious. When you don't hear of us throughout the week, go to your word. Read the scriptures. Go to John 16, 33. Say to yourself, I have peace in this world. In spite of tribulation, I will have good cheer because Christ has overcome the world. In spite of what you are experiencing, Christ has overcome. However difficult, however pressing, however adverse the tribulation, it has no power to topple the kingdom of God. It has no authority to displace His eternal reign. It has no ability to remove our citizenship. It has the inheritance. We have the inheritance as as fellow heirs in the kingdom of Christ. It will never be taken away. All of the spiritual blessings are ours. Peace. Peace. And righteousness 
Pastor Isaiah reminded me of this the other day. If we don't leave Revelation knowing this, God has also given you joy. Joy in Christ. And we're missing a big point, aren't we? You should have joy in Christ. It's one of the benefits of being in Christ. Joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. And John, our brother. Isn't that nice to hear? John, our brother. John, while on the island. John, while in the midst of that rocky island. Sent away from the church. Can you imagine being sent away from your church? Sent away from the church. Sent to a desolate island. Encourages the church from his vantage point. From where he was, he encourages not only the churches of Ephesus, the seven churches, but all the churches for all the ages, he encourages us. If we could look at John, who's on this island, and in those conditions, writing to us to encourage us about the tribulation he was experiencing, about the kingdom that we are a part of, and that we must persevere, then dear brother and sister, you better press on. You better press on. You're a part of his kingdom. You're a fellow partaker in trouble, yes, but also in the kingdom. Think of our reigning with Christ. It's not just a future benefit. It's not just a future benefit. It will be intensified. You're a part of the kingdom now. And then at death, it will be further intensified. And then at the second coming of Christ, it will be further intensified. And then at the consummation of all things, it will be maximally <laughs> intensified. I don't know if that's a word, but you know what I mean. It's not just a future benefit. It's something you're enjoying. It is now. But it's in a veiled manner. We reign with Christ now in a veiled manner. You, you don't walk around in the street and they go, well, there's there's King Anthony. Oh, there's King Bobby. Uh, there's King Armando, right? It, it's veiled. G.K. Beale, again, is very helpful on this point. Listen closely. He calls this the ironic experience or exercise. The ironic exercise. We'll talk about that word ironic in just a moment. The ironic exercise of rule is modeled in that of Christ. What does that mean? Christ who veiled his kingship on earth before his exaltation by enduring suffering and death in order to achieve his heavenly rule. Just as Christ ruled in a vain, veiled way through suffering, so do Christians, which further argues against the proposal that saints do not exercise kingship until the final coming of Christ when they are exalted over their enemies. He calls it ironic. The, the rule of Christ in his incarnation, it's ironic because in spite of Christ being a king, he was suffering tribulation. However, his tribulation did not diminish his rule. It was all a part of his rule. Christ was killed. Yes. Christ gave himself over to death. No man takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Christ was no victim. Christ was sovereignly ruling even those who, who pronounced his sentence. They were only doing what he was allowing them to do. Because he rules 
He reigns. And even though at that moment, with the crown of thorns on his head and with the the robe or the purple clothes that they put on top of him, with the blood streaming down his face, even then he's ruling in a in a veiled manner. In a veil, they could not see it. They said, "We have no king but Caesar." But the faithful saw it, and it was pronounced over his cross. He is the king of true Israel. He rules and reigns. Pastor Isaiah reminded me of this. It's what what Paul calls the foolishness of the cross. For those who are, are perishing, it's foolishness. They look at that and they say, that's absolute absurdity. But for, for Paul, he says, but for those who are being saved, it's what we look at and say, that's the power of God. Amen. For those who are perishing, foolishness. But for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Amen. It may seem odd this morning that, that one of your pastors is saying, you are a king if you are in Christ. You are a queen if you are in Christ. That you are royalty. First, because you don't live there yet, do you? It doesn't seem like you're walking around in a palace, especially when you go home. It doesn't, doesn't seem much like a palace when we go home, does it? But even though you're physically here, your citizenship is there. It's here and now. It's not something that is to come. It's now. Christ said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now. But also because of the tribulation, the suffering that you've experienced. And you say, how could I be royal if I'm experiencing all of this difficulty? Is not Christ your example? Is is it not true that those who desire to walk godly must walk as Christ walked? That we must and will suffer opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil? But just as Christ persevered, John persevered. And because of Christ being royal, the king, and because of John being in Christ, finding his identity in Christ, so you, though John was on the island of Patmos, you must persevere here in Bakersfield because of your royal identity. It's who you are. Remind yourself of who you are. Your identity of Christ is both the basis for tribulation And the reason why you can endure it. Your royal identity is both the basis for your tribulation and also the basis for your ability to persevere. Because you are in Christ. You are in Christ. We had this conversation a few days ago, Pastor Isaiah and I. You need to remind, we need to remind ourselves of that daily. When we're in grocery stores, how we speak to people. When we are at work, how we respond. When we are with our children, speaking to our wives. Do we live like we are royalty? That we are like, like we are citizens of a different kingdom? Or do we walk in step with the world? Do we respond to sin and tribulation like the world? Do we respond to our wives and children like the world? Do we look at temptation and sin and its appeal like the world? Or do we look at these things and say, I am a citizen of heaven. I am in Christ. As I said this morning to Javier and Norma in our final class, I've been baptized. 
there was a ceremony that I walked through. I had witnesses. I, I, I made these vows to God. And God made these vows to me through Christ. I, I promised to forsake all others. It's also what we do when we were married, isn't it? I can't do this. I am committed to my wife, my husband. I've made vows. I am united to, to him or to her. I live differently than everyone else. Because of my union with the love of my soul. John twice refers to Christ here as the Son of Man. And it's appropriate because He is our representative both in tribulation and in ruling. Even in the midst of suffering, not just physical suffering, but the man of sorrows, Christ endured tribulation from the manger all the way to the cross His life was sought out. And yet, tribulation did not prevent or diminish Christ inaugurating his kingdom and currently reigning over all forever. All authority has been given to Christ. Therefore, when we endure tribulation by faith, John says in Revelation 3.10, we have kept the word of Christ's endurance. At this time, here and now, we rule. We conquer. How? By not compromising our witness to Christ when faced with tribulation. And when we turn away from all of Satan's devices, we show that we rule. When you turn away from all of Satan's devices, when you endure tribulation, you are saying it's because I'm a part of a kingdom that Christ rules over and that he has made me a king in. The world is alluring, brothers and sisters. Little ones, the world is alluring. It wants to draw you into its kingdom, its false kingdom, its temporary kingdom. Saints, young and old, persevere. Persevere. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. But renew your minds in Christ. When you persevere, when you turn away from Satan's devices, it's the process of your ruling and reigning with Christ. You join our brother John when you endure. You join the royal saints of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. When you persevere in allegiance to Christ. Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we may enter the kingdom of God. John Calvin said, The church of Christ has been so divinely constituted from the beginning that the cross has been the way to victory. Death the way. Uh, death the way to death. Uh, the way. Death the way to life. Excuse me. The cross, the way to victory, death, the way to life. Richard Phillips in his commentary, if tribulation is our road and the kingdom our destination, then patient endurance is our mode of travel, our manner of living. When you endure one tribulation, it will not be the last. Patiently endure. There will be many more to come. 
But you show that you rule when you persevere and press on. Let us join our brother John and patiently endure tribulation as we presently rule and reign with Christ. Secondly, the vision of the Son of Man. The vision of the Son of Man. Let's read this again. Verse 10. Uh, let's actually begin in verse 13. Now, let's begin in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, with me. Having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Because of John's faithful witness, John was entrusted with a heavenly vision. One that he has been allowed and commissioned to share. Verses 1 through 8 were the introduction. And now we come to verses 10 and beyond. Where we will be peering into the vision that John sees and shares on behalf of the Spirit of God. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John, though physically on Patmos, was supernaturally brought into the Spirit. Now, John, as all believers, was already filled with the Spirit. But here, John is speaking about a unique experience that was shared by the prophets, such as Ezekiel, who was read this morning, and Daniel, wherein they were given a vision that was intended to be a message for the people of God. In those visions, uh, there were many symbols that were meant to be interpreted but also understood by those who knew God's word. Now, Acts chapter 10, verse 10, Peter was also taken to the spirit. And he was given a grand vision of animals that he was commanded to slay and eat. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has a similar supernatural out of body or in the body he was unsure experience, wherein he was taken into the third heaven to see things, listen to this, that he was not allowed to utter. That he was not allowed to share. All of these were in the spirit at those moments. Now here is John. Is he seeing something that, that, that Paul saw? Possibly. It is possible that Paul saw what John saw, but John wasn't, John was allowed to write it and Paul was not, right? Nevertheless, it's a unique supernatural experience. One, not common to all believers, and not something that we should expect today. It's a unique experience that occurs on a day that all churches of Asia Minor would have recognized. John calls it the Lord's Day. This is the only time in Scripture that the phrase, the Lord's Day, is used. Now, without spending too much time on this matter, it's important to note that John assumes that the church is new what day he was referring to when he said the Lord's day. Every day belongs to the Lord, some may say, but the scriptures are specifying that there is at least one day that is specifically, uniquely the Lord's. It is Sabbath language. Sabbath language. 
It was the day that was recognized by the church as being instituted by Christ because of his many significant acts that occurred on the first day of the week. The church recognized that this day was now the new Sabbath. The new Sabbath. John then hears this great voice. And this is important in how we are to interpret it. Because as John begins to say what what he saw, he uses the word like. Like and like. Which means you are to interpret it symbolically. He's saying, I'm seeing something like. I'm seeing something like. Therefore, as we interpret it, we must understand what is he making these connections to if it's something like. I see a great voice. or hear a great voice. Likens the voice to a trumpet. And then he sees the seven churches. It's important to recall that John was given these images that were to be communicated. He's receiving this message of symbols. Therefore, as we move forward, we interpret this vision symbolically. John turns and, turns and sees a voice. The voice that is speaking is in the midst of seven lampstands. He's in the middle of them. Lampstands. They are to symbolize the seven churches of Asia Minor. But also to symbolize the church of every age. In order, uh, the order of the churches, uh, the, the, the order in which they're mentioned, is of no significance. The order in which they're mentioned is of no significance. John, John's attention is drawn not only to the lampstands, but to the one who stands in the midst, the middle of the lampstands. He says, I see one who is like the Son of Man. We know this as being the Lord glorified. The predominant features of the Son of Man that John sees, they're drawn from Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10. He's echoing, if you will, what Daniel has seen. There are other texts that contribute to what we see, but Daniel is the main source. What does he see? Let's be very clear now. Some have taken what we are about to describe as being literally what Jesus looks like. That Jesus literally has uh, sheep-like, wool-like hair. That his feet are actually brown. Some people have, have made like bronze, have made the case that that Jesus is a certain ethnicity because of these descriptions. Let me say to you, John is not giving a literal description of what Christ looks like. But rather, John has given us a symbolic description of who Christ is. Taking notes, this is important. It's not what he looks like, it's who he is. Not meant to describe what he looks like, Meant to describe who he is. Does he actually see an image? Yes. But the image that he sees is meant to be interpreted symbolically. Not literally. So then, what does the image of the Son of Man symbolize? Let's go through them. It's significant that each element that John sees is meant to symbolize something about the person and work of Christ. Who he is, when we say meant to symbolize who he is, meaning the person and work of Christ. Notice first then that the Son of Man is in the middle of the lampstands. He's not away from them. The Son of Man is not distant from the lampstands. Lampstands meaning or referring to the church. He's among them. Christ is in the midst of his church. They were getting ready to suffer tribulation. Christ was in the midst of them. John was in the midst of tribulation. John being a part of the church. Christ is in the midst of him. 
Christ is present with his church. Listen to brothers and sisters, even now. Uh, the old boys used to talk about how Christ would walk through the gathering of the saints and minister to those through his word. Christ is presently among us even now. Christ is with his church in triumph. Christ is with his church in tribulation. Christ is with his church. Christ is ruling and reigning in the midst of his church. He's not absent from us. He is with us. And he sees the son of man dressed in this robe that reaches down to his feet, all the way down to his feet. It's, it's, it is to, uh, hearken back to Isaiah who sees the Lord and his train, that is his robe fills the temple. What does this to, to mean? It is to symbolize that Christ is the king. That Christ is the king. The same Isaiah who, or the, the, the same one who Isaiah saw is the same one that John sees. John echoes also Daniel 7, 9 in the vision where he sees the ancient of days, God the Father. And in Daniel 7, 9, Daniel describes God the Father as having hair like pure wool. And now John sees the Son of Man who not literally but symbolically has a head of white hair just like wool. So he sees the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and Daniel. And then John sees the Son also with the same symbolic nature. Meaning what? It's to mean and to communicate unity between the persons. It is to communicate that the Father and the Son are one. That the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. But they are eternally united. So that Jesus could say to his disciples, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Because they are one. His eyes are like blazing fire. Which is meant to communicate that Christ sees all. And also that he will judge all. He is there among his church. He knows uh, our hearts. Uh, We may not know what's in the depths of our souls. But Christ with his purifying eye sees all and knows all. He knows every mind. He knows every thought. His eye sees through it all. He knows our spiritual condition. And He will judge you. Listen to this. Do not isolate the fact that Christ will judge to only punishment. Christ will also judge in terms of blessing. Christ will judge you and I. We will be judged. Not with punishment though. With blessing. But if you are not in Christ, you will be punished with his judgment. Daniel 10 sees the Son of Man as having eyes like flaming torches. See the echo. He sees all. He knows all. His feet are like bronze when they have been made to glow in a furnace, which suggests or points to purity. When something is made to glow, it, it's ready. It's been purified. It's, it's ready to be shaped. Uh, all of the dross has been removed. And he sees this one whose feet are of bronze and they are glowing, which points to the sinlessness of Christ. He is the pure one who is among his church, who has the right to command those who are in his presence to walk pure and holy before him. John on the island of Patmos would hear the waves crashing against the rocky shores. But their intensity, the, the crashing of the waves is no match for the sound of the voice of the Son of Man. John says, His voice is like the sound of many waters. 
He hears the crashing and says, his voice stands out even above and, and, and among or above and beyond the crashing of waves. Another echo of Ezekiel 43, where God's voice is compared to the roar of many waters. John continues with his vision and notices there's something in the, the Son of Man's right hand, the hand of power and authority. It's seven stars. Seven stars in Revelation 1.20 will be identified as angels and heavenly beings. Imagine this vision of Christ and he's holding seven stars and he, with his power and authority. He's just got all of the angels in his hand. John is communicating that Christ rules not only over those on earth, but he rules over those who are in heaven. I didn't mention this, but, but John also mentions that, 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 uh, Jesus, the Son of Man, has a golden sash across his chest, which is pointing to the royal priesthood of Christ. He's not only, uh, have a, a long robe, which points to his, his rule and royalty as king, but he also has a golden sash, which points to the fact that he is our priest forever. Amen. He's not only priestly ruling here on earth, but he's priestly ruling in the church's heavenly counterpart, the saints of heaven and the angels above. The stars represent the, he- the church's heavenly existence and stars. The lampstands represent the church's existence, uh, both over which Christ rules. The Son of Man rules over the saints on earth and rules over the saints in heaven. And this is why we know that this is supposed to be taken uh, symbolically as well, because out of his mouth comes a, a a sharp, double-edged sword. For those who want to take Revelation literally, please help them to explain why all of a sudden Jesus is a circus uh, act, pulling knives out of his throat. That's not what the Scriptures are communicating, is it? We are reminded that this, this is to be taken symbolically. And he's echoing Isaiah 4, I'm sorry, Isaiah 11, verse 4, and Isaiah 49, 2, with 11, 4, Isaiah 4, 11, 4, being the main passage of view, which says this, the Messiah, in order to, to strike the nations from his mouth, will proceed a sharp sword. It's his tongue. It's the words that come from his mouth. The Son of Man, who will execute judgment, not only on the wicked, but also on the righteous and those who compromise their faith. And verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. That, that is, at the, the, the time that the sun is the brightest, the face of Christ was shining in that manner. For some, our minds might automatically recall the face of Moses when he encountered the Shekinah glory of Yahweh. It is said that his face, Moses' face, shined like the sun because he encountered the glory of God. Christ did not encounter the glory of Yahweh. Christ is the fullness of the glory of Yahweh. His light gives light to all light. Now, it may be possible that the glory of Christ is the point of this statement. Because the next verse, if you can imagine, the next verse after John has seen all of these things, John describes himself as, and then I fell down like I was dead. John says, I've seen all of this, and then I fell like a dead man. Christ lovingly and graciously puts his hand on him. Peace upon him. 
It's also likely that this verse is not only pointing to the glory of Christ, but it's intending to communicate the victorious Israelite warrior described in Judges chapter 5, but in an escalated sense. The warrior who returns from battle victorious, whose face is gleaming because he has won victory for Israel. Christ is the fulfillment of that typological uh, warrior who returns from battle because he has defeated all of his and all of our enemies. So both glory and victory are completely appropriate conclusions about this verse 16. Now, I pray that your heads are not spinning at this point. But if they are, let's briefly recap what John has, has been able to communicate about this vision. He has seen Christ in symbols. Here's what he saw. The symbols communicate that Christ is king, priest, one with the Father who sees all and will rightly judge all. He is judged because he is perfect, because of his perfect obedience. He is now worthy to judge and calls all to walk righteous in his presence. He is supreme. He rules over heaven and on earth. His word is sharp and it divides even to the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He alone is glorious. He alone has won the victory. That is what John gloriously saw. What a glorious sight to behold. Dear ones, now we must ask, well, what's the purpose of the vision? Why was this glorious sight with all of its symbols given to John for the church? Last point. On Patmos, but in Christ. Verse 9. Let's recall this. And here's the reason for it. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are on Jesus, was on the island of Patmos, called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, exiled from the churches in Ephesus, separated from those whom he was united to physically, separated from those whom he was a type of parent to, for his uncompromising, faithful witness to Christ, suffering tribulation. And while he is apparently forsaken on Patmos, left to be broken by the barrenness of the island, the authorities believing that his exile would silence the gospel, would not be abandoned by Christ. Would not be defeated because he's in Christ. And who would not be silenced because no muzzle could ever be put on the gospel. Though he was on Patmos, John was in Christ. And by the Spirit, he was shown the true sovereign Lord, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Just as the Ancient of Days was seated in Daniel's vision as judge over the nations, so Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth and over all men. He rules even over those who exiled John to Patmos. They would have to give an account for their disbelief on the day of the Lord. The exile would not move John. Because he was in Christ. And John understood this. It was the will of Christ for John to be on that island. 
it was the will of Christ, if church history is true, for John to be thrown into boiling oil. You've made chicken before. You know how one dot feels. To be thrown into boiling oil and to survive it. It was the will of God. Christ preserved John. Therefore, John persevered. Christ is preserving you. Therefore, you must persevere. You've never been thrown in hot oil. Praise be to God for that. You've had hard days, haven't you? You've had difficult days. You've had discouraging days. But be of good courage. Be of good cheer. Christ has overcome the world. It was not the will of Christ to allow John in his life to end in boiling oil. And neither was it the will of God for John's life to end on this island. Church history says John returned to Ephesus and died an old man of natural causes. His life was not in the hands of Domitian. His life was in the hands of Christ. If Christ desired to set John free, then he would be free. Just as it was Christ's desire to set, to set Peter free from Herod's jail by an angel. So too, it would be Christ's desire, Christ's will to set John free. But know this. Freedom from tribulation. Or even the presence of tribulation. Does not negate or affirm the power or the presence of God in Christ and his kingdom. If you are suffering tribulation, it's not because Christ has not, made, has not made you a part of this kingdom. The opposite may be true. And if you are not suffering persecution and tribulation, do not consider that maybe you are one of the, the few chosen and special ones in the kingdom of Christ. Paul wrote from prison. That he was bound with chains as a criminal. But made this clear. But the word of God is not bound. I'm bound. But God's word is not bound. I'm suffering tribulation. But the kingdom of Christ endures. I'm going through hardship and difficulty. But I am a king. In Christ Jesus. Even from the ancient version of Alcatraz. John was taken into the spirit. And given a vision that would encourage the church yesterday. Today I pray. And tomorrow should Christ tarry his return. Dear ones. Saints and pilgrims. Sojourners in Christ. Kings and queens in Jesus. You like the sound of that don't you? What John sees is meant to embolden you. It's meant to give you courage. It's meant to make your head and your eyes be up to the sky and eyes fixed on Christ. Because you and I are kings in his kingdom. We will be persecuted. We will suffer tribulation. The kingdom is attained by way of the cross. But since Christ has been raised whom or what shall we fear Christ has been raised what shall I fear 
The, the psalmist says, strength of my life, whom shall I fear? He says, with you I could scale a wall. Because I am emboldened, I, I know who I'm in. Brothers and sisters, let us join our brother. He's our brother, John. Fearlessly, faithfully witness for the word of God and the testimony of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. Be emboldened this morning. You're in Bakersfield. It may feel like Patmos at times, but you're in Bakersfield. You're not in a deserted island. This should give us courage. Christ is our king. He's our priest. He's victorious over sin, death, and the grave. He is eternally one with the Father and the Spirit. He knows and sees all. He is the sinless one. His word rules over all. Reigns over heaven and earth. No one can stand against His word. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. He is both glorious and victorious. But be of good cheer, he says. He has overcome the world. Fix your eyes on him. This is the vision that John was given on the Lord's day. What an appropriate day to explain what John sees. And I pray that it's what you see and hear and believe. Lord's day after Lord's day after Lord's day. That John's message of our Christ It's constantly in your ears. We preach Christ, Him crucified, Him raised, Him exalted, Him returning in glory. Let us therefore, like our brother John, patiently endure, for His kingdom is now and will soon be consummated forever to the glory, praise, and honor of our Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.